This podcast is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Now available, the Fuller Leadership Scholarship for students who begin the Certificate of Christian Studies in spring of 2019 or summer of 2019. This new scholarship will cover up to 100% of certificate's tuition cost for select students and is designated for ministry and marketplace leaders looking for new ways to impact their congregation, community, and calling. Take courses in the areas like missional churches and leadership, Christian ethics, dynamics of power and gender in Christian leadership. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash leadership scholarship. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. We hope you're beginning to look into General Assembly, June 17th to the 21st in Birmingham, Alabama. Experiencing Christ's love is only the beginning. Pursue your call to love God and love your neighbor as you join your fellowship family to worship, learn, and grow together. Through innovative training experiences, nightly worship, partner events, and a vibrant exhibit hall with live podcast interviews and entertainment, you'll meet Cooperative Baptists from around the United States and beyond. For more information, visit cbf.net backslash General Assembly. Our guest for this week's conversation is Jen Pollock-Michelle. She is a contributing writer for Christianity Today and author of Keeping Place and Teach Us to Want. She has a new book coming out in a few weeks, Surprised by Paradox. Jen, welcome to the conversation. Thank you, Andy. Well, for those that aren't familiar with your story, uh, tell us a little bit more about you. Yeah, I live in Canada. I'm not Canadian. My husband and I and our five children moved here in 2011. And so Keeping Place, that book is kind of the, the book of that charts our journeys from moving so much as a child. I've lived in lots of different states around the Midwest. Um, growing up and went to Wheaton College, met my husband there, lived in Illinois for a long time and um, yeah, ended up moving to Toronto in 2011 for what was supposed to be a short-term sort of adventure and here it is 2019 and we're still here. So um, that's super fun and I've been writing, I don't know, I guess you know, really when we moved, when I moved to Toronto in 2011, I'd been writing for Moody Bible Institute for their Today in the Word, their devotional publication. I've been doing that since 2004. And when we moved to Toronto in 2011, I thought, God is doing so much in our lives. I really just want to keep track of it all. And I was actually doing some study for Moody for a devotional that I was writing on the fear of the Lord and just thinking about the story of Israel and how they they every time they sort of met something new, they always fell into so much fear because they could never remember what God had done in their past. And so for me, my writing, really my personal writing, my books and and things that have come since then um, came out of just that desire to kind of keep a, keep record of what God was doing in in my life and in the life of our family. And so Teach Us to Want was my first book in 2014. And I mean, interestingly enough, that whole book tackles just the question of desire and the life of faith. And I think that's, that's been sort of a longstanding question I've had in my own spiritual life. Can we want um, and also 
commit ourselves to loving what God loves and wanting what he wants? Like, how does that all work together? And, and so much of that book is really about the desire to write. So it's really fun to be three books now into it and really trusting that that is a desire that God's given me and um, hopefully is using. But I I didn't say anything personal. I guess I should say too, I do have five children. So that book uh, teaches to want was also sort of born out of the constraints of life too, you know, wanting, you know, maybe to, I mean, for a long time, I had, have had desires for ministry and we had three young children, um, and then God gave us twins. <laughs> so after we had uh, the twins, I sort of thought maybe my life was over, that that was really all I was going to do was take care of my five children. Um, but that's been a sweet thing, too, to, to realize that there's been enough room. There's been enough room for the ministry desires as well as um, desires just to be present with my family. Mm. There's a young couple that's part of our church that uh, has three girls, and they decided they wanted to try one one more time, just just for a boy, <laughs> and they ended up with triplet girls. So, <gasps> oh my goodness! Yeah, so, I hear the story a lot of the three and the two, like you know, having three and then having twins. But I I think that's the first story I've heard of three plus three, yeah, and all it, girls. Yeah. Well, I've got two wow. girls myself, and girls are so much better than boys, um, just hands, <laughs> hands down. Well, I, I imagine spending one winter in Toronto would bring anybody closer to God. We have a, a, a German couple that just moved from Toronto down to Baton Rouge and spent their first winter here in Baton Rouge, and they, they're like, this is nothing compared to Canada. We will not go back. So, Are, are Canadians as, as nice as they appear? It's so funny. You talk to Canadians and they're like, Americans are so friendly. I think Canadians are very polite and they're very courteous. And even when you get into conflict to, with a Canadian, it's going to be fairly passive aggressive. Like they're, you know, they're just on the whole, very polite and courteous, but they're not as overtly warm and friendly. So several months ago, I was I actually landed in Dallas for an event and I got off the plane and people were just talking to me and chatting, you know, with me in the Starbucks line. And I was like, wow, I am in the United States again. And I'm definitely in the South because this, this is really fun. I like this. So it's not quite like that in Canada, but they are very nice. Um, And which can make, I have to be quite honest, it can make it a little difficult when you're dealing with conflict because you don't always know what they're really thinking. (laughs) There's a lot of a passive aggressiveness is what you're saying? Yeah. I don't want to get in trouble with Canadian listeners. And I love Canadians. Obviously, we've chosen to stay in Canada. But um, just from my experience, it's not quite as direct a culture as the United States. Um, So that's, yeah, a big difference that you'll see. I mean, my husband sees it in his work culture. We see it just you know, in neighborhood relationships and friendships and, um, but it's a great place to live. Toronto is amazing. And actually, Andy, I was going to say, you must have familiarity with Toronto because you said it correctly. You said it like somebody who lives here, because if you live here, you say Toronto. And so you sort of drop that last T. If you're visiting, you say Toronto, but you said Toronto. So I was like, huh. I grew up with some familiarity. So 
That's why. Okay. And, okay. and don't worry. Yeah. Canada seems to be missing out on the podcast. Surprisingly enough, we've got a huge audience in Australia, Japan, oh. the Netherlands, and uh, there was one other country that kept popping up on our um, stat sheet. And I was like, wow. So shout out to our, our listeners in the Netherlands and Canadians. You just need to get on board with this. But uh, yeah. So what, what's your favorite uh, poutine topping or how do you dress your poutine? Uh, I am going to have to be honest and say, I do not eat it. I, we supposedly the best poutine you can get is in Quebec. And so we have, you know, been in Quebec for, I don't know, lots of different times, you know, to visit Montreal and Quebec city. And, um, so I've had it there, but that's about the only place I'm ever going to have it. And I don't love it. I just, yeah. I love fries. I love cheese, but I just, and gravy. I love gravy too. I just don't want them all together. You're, um, you're not really helping yourself out with your Canadian <laughs> neighbors here. Let's see. What can I say to, you know, win favor with the Canadians? Um, oh, I'm going to have to think about that. <laughs> There's, don't worry. They're nice. They just won't tell you they're upset with you. That's right. so, uh, so let's get to this, uh, this whole ministry of writing. I mean, it's your third book. You contribute a good bit, uh, and, uh, and other outlets. What, what led you to, uh, to this ministry of writing? I grew up with a dad who was a writer. My dad was a communications professor. And so we moved around quite a lot, actually, for him. He used to teach high school English, and then he went back for his PhD and taught um, English and communications at several different universities. So growing up, that was just something, you know, that seemed very normal to me. He'd write poems for my mom for, you know, her birthday and Mother's Day. And he wrote plays that he performed in and, you know, other kinds of writing. So that just, again, I just sort of thought that was normal. I wouldn't necessarily have said though that I was a writer. I mean, for sure. I don't think I would have said that. I went to Wheaton and I did a French degree and an English, um, not exactly a minor, but essentially I taught high school French and English. And at the time, I had a friend who was doing some editing for Moody and that's sort of how I started my Moody connection. Um, I just started to do some freelance editing for them once we had a family and, you know, and they had some extra projects that they needed help with. And so I started to do that and never imagined myself to be a writer really. And, and that's not, I mean, that's, that's totally truthful. I remember though, as a young mom, again, I think it's just sort of having grown up with someone who expressed themselves with writing as a young mom, that first kind of like six months, a year, just so much change. And I really felt like it felt very natural to express that through writing. So I wrote a, I wrote a little project then that I would give to friends when they had their babies. Um, and that was just something, yeah, just something that I did. And truthfully, actually, I can think I did that in high school too. I was, um, in Young Life, and there were a group of girls a couple of years younger than me and another friend, and we sort of discipled them through high school. And when they graduated from high school, I also wrote something for them, just like a little sort of devotional. And so I did that as a young mom. And so, I mean, in a lot of ways, it makes sense. Like, although, I mean, it wasn't until I moved to Toronto that I really thought, maybe I have a, maybe I have a book in me, um, which sounded kind of like a crazy idea. But it really was a little bit more at the beginning about answering some of my own questions. And sort as I, as I said, as we were sort of 
starting our conversation, one of the biggest questions I had was about desire and faith. You know, I really think I grew up um, thinking that desire was terrible. It was always kind of the corrupt force in your soul. And, and that certainly comes out of a very, just kind of a prodigal story. I grew up in the church and had a prodigal season and came back to the Lord, you know, later in high school. Um, but, you know, in some ways, I mean, looking back, it all kind of makes sense. Like, of course, look at how much writing I've done. Look at how much I've sort of turned to writing in seasons of transition. But writing is ministry. It, in some ways, the speaking, I used to do a lot more speaking. I mean, I'm doing obviously a lot now. But I would say, you know, I remember actually moving to Toronto in 2011 and talking to a friend at church. And she had a lot of desires to write. And she was kind of like, do you see yourself more as a writer or a speaker? And I was like, oh, I think more a speaker, <laughs> which is just so funny. I don't know. Um, so I think I've struggled to lay claim to not only the desire to write, but also that it is, a, I think, a calling. I think, I'm, I think I'm now more confident that this is something that God has not only given me a desire to do, but given me skill to do. And, and, and what's so beautiful, too, is that it, it really works with my family life. Um, I can't imagine, truthfully, you know, having five children and having a really busy husband with his own work. I can't imagine, like, you know, being in an office eight to five every day. I just don't know how that would work exactly with our family. But writing has been such a beautiful way to sort of um, do meaningful work, um, do the work of ministry, which I've, I've long wanted to do, but um, do it in a way that it has a lot of flexibility um, so that, you know, when summer rolls around, I don't usually accept a lot of deadlines. You know, I let myself um, have the flexibility to drive my kids to summer camp and, you know, explore our city and visit family in the United States. Um, so that's sort of a long meandering way of sort of describing how writing has come about. I think, I guess, to, as an encouragement to listeners, I think that's what calling often feels like. I feel like it's like this, we don't usually get these like really clear instructions from God, like, here's what you're meant to do. You'll never fail at anything as you try to do it. There won't be any real risk in it, you know. Um, it hasn't looked that way for me, for sure. And I think it's just an encouragement for people that as we're sort of like kind of making a very clumsy way toward, in, in very dim light that God gives, um, you know, maybe sometimes like five years, seven years now, I'm sort of three books down the line, like, okay, this, I think this is making sense. I think this is what God's calling me to do. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we believe God has called and empowered congregations to change the world. For 25 years, Center consultants, coaches, and educators have been supporting congregations, clergy, and lay leaders as they meet the ongoing challenges of congregational life, including training ministers to manage transition, helping congregations work through polarizing conflict, coaching clergy to discover and utilize their gifts for ministry, and assisting congregations in discerning God's call to future missions and ministry. 
center consultants and coaches don't dispense expert advice. Instead, they recognize the uniqueness of each congregation and work to create the space needed for God's people to discern and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in missions and ministry. Well, you're on your third book now, as you said. Um, it's coming out in May, Surprised by Paradox, the Promise of an And in an Either-Or World. This book is about the paradox of incarnation and kingdom, grace, and lament. You wrote, faith doesn't always divide the world into two clean halves, right and wrong. In those places of seeming perilous, whether or either seem to bind our hands, we can surrender our straitjacket imagination and look for the creative of the incarnation God and the love mm. of the great I and. Mm-hmm. So yeah. what, uh, what paradox were you seeing in your life and faith journey that you needed to write a book about the paradox of the Christian faith? Yeah. I don't think I knew it was a book about paradox initially. I think I thought it was a book about mystery. I think it, I thought it was a book about kind of the tensions of faith. I mean, those have been really, our, the last two books are about paradox. I just never would have said it exactly that way. So this idea that we have to, like when we have to hold things in tension. So for Teach Us to Want, that idea is about desire, that we have to hold in tension the rightful cautions of desire that we are depraved, that we can, you know, we can, we can go off the rails. And when it comes to our life of desiring, but that's not the whole story. There's also a call to desire. God's a desiring being. And we are baptized um, into Christ's death and raised with him to walk in newness of life. So there's this both and idea with desire. And I think keeping place, the both and of home, that there's, there's something very beautiful and important about the now. But we also know the now isn't the whole story, that there's a not yet home and this hope in our future. And Keeping those intention, like for, you know, with um, the idea of home, I think I always grew up always thinking about the not yet. And I'm finally in a, in a church that I think is, um, has language for both that, you know, we call ourselves, um, I attend Grace Toronto Church, we call ourselves a church in the city for the city. And there's real desire to make our city a better city now. And also um, for eternity, you know, I mean, we care very much for people's um, eternal souls. So, so the now and the not yet, you know, that's the tension of keeping place. So to get to surprise by paradox, it makes a lot of sense to me. It probably isn't going to, you know, be all that crystal clear to everybody else. But, and, and again, as I started writing it, I just thought, I'm really interested when faith um, is full of tension. And what I'm really interested in is when we want to either disregard that tension, like, oh, it's not really there, or we want to come up with easy solutions for dismantling it. Like, let's just, oh, tension. We don't like tension. We don't like having to affirm things that seem contradictory. Um, but you know what? God did that in his very being in the incarnation. And so I think we can look to the nature of God and say, God has absolutely no problem with tension because I don't know of any greater tension than the incarnation that God is both God 
and man. And at the same time, and neither are mitigated. And it's not as if either are moderated either. It's not like half God, half man. Okay. You know, he's sort of met in the middle. No, the both and. And um, that just has become kind of a, a, a way that I've started to see um, my life. Maybe it's actually presenting for me a way of how I look for God, that I'm actually starting to look for God in the both and. And here would be like a really recent example that um, I think could be anything. I mean, I think, well, I'll just share a story from the very beginning of the book when I talk about marriage that, you know, marriage is so much built on the both and both that we're supposed to lay down our lives and serve and submit to and love and surrender our will to this other person. And we also still have to be fully ourselves. You know, I feel like the Holy Spirit has said to me most recently in marriage, you know, there's only one wife in this relationship. Like if I only, um, surrendered my will and never said anything to Ryan, like never kind of possibly disagreed or maybe argued or brought up my own perspective, like that would be half a marriage. So there's a both and in marriage, there's a both and in parenting, that both I am um, training up my children in the way that they should go, and I'm letting them grow by their mistakes. I'm not controlling their behavior. I'm, I'm giving them instruction and I'm, I'm respecting, you know, I'm actually giving God room to grow them um, apart from me, if that makes any sense. So the both and has become like this angle, like this window into just looking into my circumstances and maybe asking, it's forcing me to wonder about the kinds of questions I ask of God because truthfully, I usually ask him either or questions, you know, should I do this or should I not, you know, should we go or should we stay? Should we, um, yeah, it's usually like I give, I go to God and I don't even know I'm doing it, but I have these two alternatives in mind. And I realize like that's, that's the impoverished imagination that I'm talking about. God isn't bound to my two alternatives when I consider a problem. And often the way of the both and, although it's such an incredible tension to hold, it's the way of greatest prayerfulness and dependence upon the Holy Spirit. So I think those are the moments where you're, you cannot lean on your own understanding because it doesn't make sense. I want to settle, if we can, into two of the paradoxes, uh, the kingdom and uh, lamenting. And we'll kind of come back to lamenting. Let's talk a little bit about, about the kingdom. Um, you wrote, maybe the paradox of the kingdom isn't simply that it's a liberally comes to everyone who would receive it, rich or poor. Maybe it's the surprise is that it would come at the behest of seeking and saving God. What's clear about the good news of the kingdom is that whomever it finds, they likely haven't been looking for it. For, for you, what is the kingdom? The kingdom is God's rule, you know, God's rule. And we know that um, God's desire is that his, he's ruling over the world and he longs to rule fully on the earth as is as in heaven. So I just think very simply, it's sort of the sphere of God's rule and God's reign where God's authority is recognized. And we see the kingdom 
you know, when Jesus inaugurates his ministry and says, the kingdom's at hand. And what, what are all the evidences of that? Well, it's like the reversal of the curse. It's the reversal of, of disease and death. It's the reversal of the consequences of sin and suffering. And so he's forgiving sin and he's making lame people um, walk and blind people see. And so the king, those, that's how we know the kingdom's coming is that we're looking back. I mean, I guess some scholars would say, you know, we, we, we really saw the kingdom in Eden, right? It's God's people in God's place under God's rule. And that's what Jesus was sort of taking back. He was taking back the ground of the kingdom. And of course, um, paradoxically, you know, the kingdom is, is really most, you know, it's established by his death and then resurrection. So, um, you know, the kingdom doesn't, doesn't come because he has political power or social gravitas. Um, he doesn't, you know, win friends and influence people. The kingdom comes in the most surprising way because Jesus surrenders to his own death and, and, and execution. And then the stone rolls away and it's as if Jesus and it's, it, his death is vindicated and God's like, yep, this is, this is happening every, you know, it, it's the, um, it's um, Lord of the Rings, right? Where every sad thing comes untrue or something. I know I'm mangling that and I'm showing that I have never actually read um, the Lord of the Rings, which probably makes me a completely illegitimate Christian writer. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> well, the good news is there's a, a complete series coming out on uh, J.R.R. <laughs> Tolkien, and then they're doing a prequel uh, to all of the Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. So you can you can catch up soon enough. There There is time and hope oh, for all. Oh, good. You know, it's okay that you okay. didn't grow up like a dork like I did and read through the books multiple, <laughs> multiple times and could probably oh my be gosh. the best when it comes to quizzing on, you know, any given topic or character or or land <laughs> or earth or whatever. So uh, your your grace is, uh, is, is, is great in this moment. So. <laughs> okay, good. So I can look to you for that quote. Yeah, well, um, yeah. Well, you you spoke a good bit about the the vulnerability of of the kingdom, which I thought was a, a powerful yes. piece. And you said Jesus often uh, presents in parables as seeds and tiny pearls. The, the kingdom is not seen in the might of Rome or suppression of Herod, but in a the coup of a baby from a manger, the bleeding Nazarene teacher on a cross. And I, I think this gets to you know a good bit as to where the the church is. Um, I don't, mm. I don't know how far off the Canadian evangelical movement is from the American evangelical movement. And one of the things that we've done incorrectly is trying to bring force and dominance of the kingdom that does not mm -hmm. reflect the kingdom of Jesus as is laid out in the gospels. And this tends to show itself in election cycles over issues of pro-life and immigration, separation of church and state, well, more likely merging of church and state and politically justified racism. And I guess what I'm trying to ask is, mm. has, has the comfort and dominance of Christianity in America or in Canada been an attempt to negate this, this nature of the kingdom that you spoke about that has, has great vulnerability and power in that vulnerability? Mm. Whether or not it's been a conscious negation, I think it, it has been a negation or it's been, um, I guess I would say it like this. And one book that has really impacted me um, is Eugene Peterson's 
Jesus is the way, I think is what it's called. And, you know, he says initially in that book that evangelical Christians are so excited about Jesus being the truth, um, but we are a little bit less excited about Jesus being the way. You know, we're, we're excited about Jesus being the truth um, and even the life, the promise of life to come. But the way of Jesus, do we actually embrace the way of Jesus? And I think there's, there is um, a, a correction um, consciously that, could, that needs to be made in American evangelicalism. I'm not that far from it. It is a very different scene in Canada. I'm, I'm, I'm watching it. I do feel like a bit from afar since I've now been two election cycles here in Canada. But um, I think it's, it's easy to forget that the kingdom is built on all this paradox, that the wisdom of the kingdom looks like foolishness to men and the power of the kingdom comes through what looks to be visible weakness, you know, and that the kingdom actually came through the, the death of God. And um, of course, that's not the end of the story, but um, we, I think the disciples, um, they felt, you know, pretty shocked at the way that the kingdom was coming. You know, I mean, we look at Peter and he's like, this shall never be, you know, no, you are not going to Jerusalem to die. And so I think that there's something, I suppose it's that we must surrender. We must fully trust that God will get his work done. God will get his work done, and he doesn't need us improving upon his methods. And that to me, like, you know, I was actually just reading again, just through my daily Bible reading, the parable of the sower. And I was like, you know, there were very few seeds that actually were, were like took root and grew to harvest. You could actually look at that farmer and you could think, he didn't do a very good job. Like he scattered seeds along the path. Like, was he just sort of haphazardly scattering these seeds and couldn't he have had a better method? I mean, if we are to like, sort of impose our values, for instance, in that story of efficiency and productivity, it doesn't work, right? That, actually, that farmer looks like he's not doing his job right. And yet that Jesus is saying that farmer is God, <laughs> you know, and, and us too, I think by extension, as we, you know, participate with God in building his kingdom, but could we accept that building God's kingdom may look like, um, I mean, that looks like foolishness to me, quite honestly, you've got these th four, four different types of seeds and only one type of seed actually takes root. Wow. And so I, I'd like for us as American evangelicals to, and, and just truthfully anyone, um, return to the scriptures looking for the surprises. Let's look for the surprises. What is God doing that we just don't expect? What is God doing that, that sort of chafes against our expectations? And, you know, as Americans, we sort of... Um, you know, it is our nature to sort of uh, bluster in and fix things and we go big or go home. And that's not the kingdom. Let's talk a little bit about lament. You've said that uh, lament isn't the road back to normal. It's the road back to faith. Was there some lament you were experiencing in your life that you needed to write about it? Yes. 
I told my editor um, a couple years, I mean, years ago, I said, you know, I bet there's a grief book in me somewhere. And um, to my surprise, you know, of one quarter of this book is, is basically that grief book. So when I was a freshman at Wheaton, I got a, um, a call in March, actually, to say that my dad had just suddenly passed away and that I needed to fly home to Ohio where my family lived. And, you know, my dad wasn't yet 50. He had just turned 49 and um, I'm not even 19. And here I am flying home and my, my dad's gone. Um, and I don't think I even, I had, I had absolutely no categories for that at that age. And I think also just in terms of how I grew up, you know, both in my family and in my church culture, I certainly had no language for lament. I, I, what I knew was like getting on with it, you know, like kind of, yeah, like you, you know, you maybe take your week off and then you return to school and you get on with it. You get on with your life and, and that's personality too. Um, but then, you know, I graduated from Wheaton, got married, and then a year after we were married, we were actually back in Ohio for a friend's wedding, and I get another call, and this time it's also my mom, and my brother has taken his life. My brother was a couple of years older than me and had been struggling with addiction, and I, I mean, now looking back, it's like, a, you know, addiction, mental health. Again, we didn't have all the, we knew the addiction part. I don't know that we knew the mental health part, you know, back then. Um, and I, again, what did I do? I like, I got on with it. Um, I didn't really understand what it could mean to both grieve and hope. And I have to say like the lament part of the book is like my favorite part because it comes out of such a deep place of, um, I think really just, I mean, many years later after the event, then sort of confronting the grief and, conf and, and really having to wrestle with the idea of like, what can God be good when life isn't good? And it's something that I, I often, when I'm speaking at events, I usually, I try to, you know, have a session on loss because I think that's where people are. People are so much wondering, wanting language that is both faithful and honest. And I think we often struggle as people of faith to know, like, is honesty okay? Is it just okay to say, like, this really sucks? Or, God, I don't know where you are. Or, I have no idea what, you, what you're doing, and I feel abandoned by you. And, and the crazy thing is, is that the scripture is full of that kind of language. I just don't think that we often, we go to it often enough. We, we don't, we don't um, teach on laments. We don't say what, what is, what is this look like in practice? And one of the things I say in the book is that um, lament isn't just complaint. It's not just airing your complaints. Like life is really hard and God feels really um, far. It's actually complaint to God. It is, it's an incredible act of intimacy with God uh, trusting him, like to, to actually be able to take it, you know, which, which Job did and the psalmist did and Hannah did. And first Samuel one, I, I love teaching on the story of Hannah because um, I think she, she shows us what it can look like to grieve and to pray and to hope um, for God to intervene. That's, that's yeah. The, all those are, 
all, all of this understanding, I mean, is, is now like 25 years after the death of my father when I was 18 and the death of my brother when I was 23. Um, and I, and I think realistically having had those, um, losses so early, I sort of feel like, Oh, you know, I know more are ahead. And, um, I hope I'll, I'll hope, I hope I bring new understanding, I guess, into whatever losses are ahead. The understanding that, you know, God, God's big enough to, to take my grief and my anger and my doubt and, and to actually be able to trust him with that is clearing the way for praise. That's how Ellen Davis says it in her book, um, which I can't remember the title now, but she's um, a professor at Duke Divinity. She says, you lament clears the way for praise. As you think around this book that you've written, how do you see people working through the paradox of the Christian faith? I think that one of my hopes, again, is that, you know, this would sort of give us fresh eyes um, to, to enter into the text, you know, into scripture with, um, Sort of like a hospitality to the things that don't make sense. I think that it, it's just very hard to read scripture and sit with the things that don't make sense. Um, but I actually think that's what really enlivens the reading of it. It's like those, I love Marilyn McIntyre's um, phrase, or I think it's a subtitle of one of her books, pausing where scripture gives you pause. And if there's anything that people take from this book, I hope it's just that, that pause like pausing where scripture gives you pause, pausing at the things that don't make sense, pausing at the places of mystery, pausing at the places of paradox. And I, I use the metaphor of uh, Moses and the burning bush um, because I think that is sort of demonstrating what it can look like when we meet and confront paradox. You know, here's Moses. He is confronted with a bush that burns but is not burned you know paradox like this doesn't make sense and and what does he do scripture tells us that he draws like i think i'll take a closer look i mean wow like what if the church more curiosity could be born in the people of god what if people um didn't maybe sort of um abandoned or let go of their their need to control their theology, to control um, ideas about God, you know, just so it all makes sense. Like, what if we could just become a little bit more um, comfortable with mystery? And I'd love to see people doing that in conversation with one another. And um, truthfully, as I start the book, I also talk about, I think, the incredible witness that it has when we become those kinds of people of curiosity and also humility. Like, I, I, I think the world is pretty tired of Christians who think they know everything. So, hey, let's say that let's admit all the things we don't know. And let's say these are some of the most beautiful things about faith. You know, I don't know how it works that in grace, um, that God wills, um, works in me to will and to work for his good pleasure. I have no idea how that works. That's incredibly paradoxical that it's God in me working in me to work and to will, you know, I, I don't know, but, um, I'd like to become the kind of person who's just 
fascinated by God and his way, um, his will and how he works in the world. And I would love for that um, fascination, and I call it it's wonder, really. I want that wonder to turn into worship. And I think that wonder um, turning into worship like has just such a compelling witness in the world. What's your greatest hope for the book? Oh, my greatest hope. I don't know. That's, that's, that's really tough, Andy. My, what is my one greatest hope? It's like, what is your one greatest hope for your children? Oh, one great hope that I have um, for the book, because it really is so much, it is an engagement with scripture is that people would re, would be renewed in their love for scripture, that familiar things would stop looking so familiar and um, would become more fascinating. And that people would at the end of this say, you know, I'd, li- I'd like to be, I mean, I'm not saying that I'm the most careful reader of scripture, but I hope that there's some careful reading of scripture in the book so that on the other end of it, we're all sort of like, Hey, I'd like to, I'd like to continue finding more surprises. I think I've only just touched on a few. I mean, I continue to, now that I'm past writing the book, I mean, long past writing it, quite honestly, it's as if I have new eyes as I read scripture, you know, for instance, I was reading the story of the temptation um, and God, you know, Jesus being led into the wilderness and then he comes out of the wilderness and like the paradoxes that sort of struck me is that the spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. Like that, I think that's a surprise for us as Christians that God could will the wilderness in our lives could be absolutely where he wants us to be. And that on the other side of the wilderness, Jesus comes out and it, he's full of the spirit's power. So what seems like the most desolate place is the place where like great fruitfulness is born. Incredible. Like, that this is it's shocking, but how many times have we read that story and we just sort of like gloss over those details? So I'd love for people to sort of finish the book and then engage with their own regular reading of scripture with those kind of fresh eyes. Well, I'm glad that you have this wonderful hope for it. See, it wasn't that bad. That was that was excellent. That's a that's a good hope for your book. I always anticipated like somebody's gonna be like, uh, like to sell like ten thousand copies. I don't I don't know. You know just a good amount. But, but My publisher went, is probably waiting for me to say that. Like, if they're li- hello, if you're listening, um, yes, yeah, selling a few books would be fine too. <laughs> well, the good news is we know if they're Canadian, they're not listening. That's true. That's true. But they're <laughs> Americans. So, <laughs> well, for those that want to stay connected, you can follow Jen at jenpollockmichelle.com. Uh, follow Jen on Twitter and on Facebook. Of course, go out and purchase Surprised by Paradox. Jen, thank you for alienating our Canadian listeners uh, for me. Um, <laughs> Anytime. Uh, but more importantly, thank you for inviting us to see the paradox of our faith. Mm, thank you so much, Andy. It was a great conversation. Well, that's it. That's our episode. Be sure to check out our annual sponsors' websites, the Center for Congregational Health at healthychurch.org and Fuller Seminary at fuller.edu. For more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, including stories about our church starters, field personnel, leadership development, peer learning groups, and advocacy, visit cbf.net.